I thought about climbing it for 35 years. I trained for a whole year. I was on the mountain for 60 days before I reached the summit. And how long was I on the summit? About 10 minutes. So if you think of that from an investment standpoint, that's a very poor return on investment of, of my time and energy and money and effort. Uh, so it's not even really about standing on the summit. And those, those 10 minutes on the summit did not change me into a vastly better or different person. Um, it, was, it was a glorious moment. I'm glad I have the memory and the image in my mind, but it's all the effort and the experiences as you go up the mountain. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us through their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective and today with me is Jim Davidson. Jim is a passionate and routineered mountaineer who has been in almost every mountain range in the world but calls the Rocky Mountains of the US his home. Unfortunately, Jim was involved in two of the most feared events a climber and mountaineer can experience. He lost his best friend in 1992 when on Mount Rainier he and Mike fell into a crevasse and Mike did not survive that fall. And the second tragic event occurred 2015 when Jim and his team were on Mount Everest when the deadly earthquake hit Nepal. And it's these moments of sheer survival where you just have to know that you need to act and you need to react in order to come out alive on the other end. When a major incident like that happens, an accident or an avalanche danger, or in my case on Everest, an earthquake, you, you, there's a moment of disbelief. And, and you say, this can't be happening. It's, it's too scary. It's too unreal. And it's probably because it's never happened to you before. It is far outside your experience. And that's a natural human response. But I've found you can't spend very much time there because it can cause you to freeze up and not respond. And in that moment of crisis, you have to focus exclusively on what can I do to improve my chances of survival and the uh, safety of the people around me. Even if they're very small things like putting on your hat to stay warm, clipping in one more carabiner as a backup to the safety system, small things like that can start moving you towards taking more action. So even when you take a small action, maybe it has not enhanced your safety a great deal, but you're taking some power back. You're starting to act against the forces that are trying to kill you and harm your teammates. So I think that's very critical to move out of that case of being in disbelief and frozen and interacting. Um, now, that doesn't take away the terror and it doesn't take away the mind racing of all the bad things that might happen very soon. But at least you're engaged with the problem and starting to work on it. Just going back a little bit on on when you fell in the crevasse where you realized you will not get you know, there's no one picking you up. Um, no one is coming for you for, and, and you cannot wait it out. You have a very small window of, because of the freezing temperatures that were, you know, about to hit you at this point in time. And you knew it would take you several hours. If, if ever there would be a chance that you get out, you would have to do it right now. How long, like how hard it is to, to shake off all the, yeah, a bit, but the, yeah, the terror and the disbelief and say, okay, I now have to function. I just, I cannot think I have to function right now. How, how difficult is that? 
It's very difficult, and it's almost like having the mind of a child. You know, you're trying to think your way through a difficult problem of how to, in my case, it was how to climb up a 25-meter ice wall with no partner to belay me because my partner and friend Mike Price was dead. Uh, I had insufficient ice screws, and I had never used the, the gear to advance or aid my way up the wall. So I was trying to solve that problem, and the emotional part of my mind would just panic and say, We're, I'm going to freeze in here. There's no way out of this. And so it's almost like having a small child in charge of part of your brain, and you have to continually mm. go back to, I have to solve this problem. And that's that's part of your survival instinct for sure. And it's difficult to hang on to that, but you have to keep moving forward through the problem. But as the hours go on and a tragedy unfolds, in the case of me being in the crevasse, it took four or five hours to climb out of there. Um, you know, the panic goes away a little bit, but still the negative mm. thoughts come into your mind. And I find that the, the thing that helps me through those moments is thinking about other people because if I'm so afraid for me, I can just sort of give up, but I can't lose control and I can't just die because of fear on behalf of other people. So I was thinking about my wife back home. I was thinking about my good friend, Mike, who just given his life to save me in that 25 meter crevasse fall. And I thought I can't disappoint them. I can't screw this up by just giving into my own fear and panic. I've got to figure a way through this. So certainly I wanted to survive, but I found that leaning on the others in my life that have influenced me helped me the most. Well, that's a, uh... I mean that's very very strong if you can have people that even not that are not with you in this very moment which i think many people would understand if there's a life in danger at this very moment but that you can even go out of your situation you're in right now and actually think of people back home and then and then get that additional energy get that additional power and drive uh, into you yeah i think of it this way if it, if i took some glass bottles and broke them on the street and asked you to walk across it you would say no if I try to maybe give you money, you probably wouldn't do it. But if you had to save the life of a, of a loved one or a small child on the other side of the street, mm. you would be able to run across that glass and, and save that person. And that's where it just, it's going on beyond yourself to something more mm. important, which is love and your obligation to others and the human instinct to want to support one another. So in those moments of crisis, um, everyone can take a little a little confidence in that you know you would still feel the fear and it will still be scary and difficult. But by thinking about those that you care about and people that have helped you, uh, it becomes a mutual obligation that you will endure whatever is necessary in that moment of fear mm. and crisis uh, to try and see yourself through and help others. You, you you kind of stop questioning it. If you should do it, you know you have to do it in that way. Correct. Correct. Well, now you've uh, yeah you you've had two absolutely horrible experiences. I think they are the top two on every climbers and mountaineers list, falling in a crevasse and being hit by an avalanche, um, plus losing friends. It um, sounds so terrifying. And uh, yet it, it didn't stop you at all from keep going back into the mountains. And uh, some people uh, struggle with uh, understanding why you why you're going back, right? Yes, um, it's. It, I did continue climbing. I've been a climber now for almost 40 years, in spite of these terrible things that happened back in 1992 uh, on Mount Rainier and 2015 on Everest. But it certainly did give me pause. After both of them, I, I took some time off from the climbing and I asked myself, uh, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And do I want to keep going back? And, and if I do want to go back, why? What is it? What is it I'm going back for? So they both gave me a long time to think. And Sometimes people will hear that I just went back and they think I'm either stupid, that I didn't learn anything from it, or crazy, and then I'm just a big risk taker and just hurl myself off the next cliff and hope it all goes well. And, and I would like to think that neither is true. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to think I think carefully about these things and that it, as a mountaineer, people sometimes think that we're just big risk takers. 
I think the opposite is true. We're very much risk managers. We spend the vast majority of our time planning our food supplies and our safety communication devices and having good anchors and strong ropes. That's all risk management. It's that we want to um, receive the rewards that the mountains and wilderness offer us, and we're willing to take some risk, and we try and do it in a thoughtful way. Uh, but certainly after those incidents, going back was difficult. And basically what mm -hmm. I figured out over a long period of time was that taking on these challenges refines me into a better version of myself. That is, it forces me to do more and to become more than I was before. And so it, it, they are dangerous somewhat, and they are scary. Um, and I don't love every minute on the mountains when it's difficult or threatening. But I find that overall it improves me into a better version of myself. I'm hopefully stronger, kinder, smarter, hopefully a better teammate. And some of that comes back in my day-to-day -day life. So I choose to go back in spite of some of the dangers. Um, and I try and minimize those dangers. I pick my routes carefully yeah. and I pick my teammates carefully. And I try and train very hard to be a strong and, and capable team member. But I have concluded that the rewards are greater than the risk. So I keep doing it. You said at one point, if you were actually a risk taker, you would just uh, run up naked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that before, right? I, I mean, that would be very risk taking. Go out into a snowstorm naked, charge up a mountain I've never seen before and know nothing about. That would be extreme risk taking. But of course, yeah. you would have a very short career doing that. So uh, <laughs> like, like yourself yeah. and most other adventurers, uh, we think carefully about what we're doing, uh, but we Absolutely. choose to do it uh, so that we can seek the rewards. The the summit is, is the halfway point, right? You need to also you know make it back and... Um, yeah, often going going out into the wild into adventures, it's it's one thing that you are brave enough by yourself to do it. But you know, as you said, you also you have people at home that that you let go, and they also expect certain things of you, and they expect you to come back home. And that is probably you know also part of the responsibility that you have uh, you have towards them to you know to be a risk avoider in a way. Absolutely, and and I've found over the years I've been climbing for a few years now that uh, the summit is kind of the, the pleasant uh, little cherry on top of the dessert. It's perhaps the pretty part, it's the, the sweet part, but it really is not that critical to most of the learning and most of the experience. Uh, for instance, in, in the case of Everest, I, I thought about climbing it for 35 years. I trained for a whole year. I was on the mountain for 60 days before I reached the summit. And how long was I on the summit? About 10 minutes. So if you think of that from an investment standpoint, that's a very poor return on investment of, of my time and energy and money and effort. Uh, so it's not even really about standing on the summit. And those those 10 minutes on the summit did not change me into a vastly better or different person. Um, it was it was a glorious moment. I'm glad I have the memory and the image in my mind. But it's all the effort and the experiences as you go up the mountain. And even if I had climbed within five meters of the summit and turned around, My ego might be disappointed that I didn't summit, but most of the learning and improvement and experiences I would have had in the other, you know, 8,840 meters on the way up, just not the last few meters. So I think the, the summit is kind of a, a pleasant prize or a present gift, uh, but it's it's not that critical to the learning and the growing. Um, and so it's the, the journey up and down the mountain is really what teaches us the most and can improve us the most. And from all the learnings you have, how much are you able to then translate into everyday life? I'm just thinking about, you know, a lot of that is also technical learning, climbing learning, experience. Um, but I'm sure there are so many things you can also take back into your everyday life. Yes, there's, there's certainly passing on the technical skills. And as your uh, athletic career grows and then starts to shrink a little bit when you get older like me, you start thinking about passing those skills on to the next generation. And so what I've done with that is to try and take out beginner climbers and pass those along 
and also teach classes through my local university to young climbers about how to be better climbers and more importantly, safer climbers, better team members. So I help teach uh, ice climbing and alpine classes here at the local university on a part-time basis. And uh, every other year we would take the students on an expedition somewhere around the world to pass those skills on. And I feel good about that to, to teach the mm. next generation like, like somebody taught me because we're all beginners in, at the start. Yeah. But even more so, I'm focused on sharing the lessons from these experiences. And that's why I became a professional speaker and an author mm -hmm. is to write down uh, not so much to fellow climbers how to climb a particular technical section or how to tie the right knot, but those lessons that are learned from those long, long trips and all the th thinking about it afterwards, uh, lessons about how to be more resilient in life and how to be a better team member mm -hmm. and how to add to the team during a state of fear or uncertainty and not pull away from the team. And that's why I became a speaker and, and a writer as well. And and you said your audience, if you you know were to define an audience, it's not so much the fellow climber who wants to learn about how to climb Everest or other mountains, but it's more people who who seek some of these insights that 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 you've gotten some of this you know where you describe yourself being a bit of a better version of yourself that they're actually interested in. Yes, um, you know I kind of thought about that before I started becoming a speaker and a writer. I thought, well, most people don't want to know how to ice climb. They're especially because I speak to business audiences and professional mm. associations and sometimes universities. Very few of those people are going to become climbers. And if they are, they should take a local climbing class from a certified professional guide instructor who's a better climber than me and is more aware of uh, the teaching techniques. So they can get that from other sources. So what is it they want to know from somebody who has had very distinct experiences like you or, or myself? Um, and I thought back about all the books and movies that have been created about explorers around the world and adventurers. And I think what it is, is they most folks are not going to go on that trip, but they would love to know the reward, the present, the lesson that you gain from that trip. So they'll say something like, wow, you've been on this amazing trip, Torben. What did you see? What did you learn? They want the gems. They want the best distillations. Uh, they don't want to hear about your two days waiting for a bus and sitting in the tent for four days during a rainstorm. That's not very exciting. They want to hear what did you see that was amazing and learn that was amazing. So that's what I try to do in my presentations and my book is distill those moments um, to pass those lessons on, but also to be very honest as well. I'm, I get afraid. I get cranky when it rains and the food runs out and we're running late for, for our bus ride. Uh, I'm human. I, I get upset about those things. So I try to put that in there as well to show that you can be upset and scared and uncertain and yet still get these things done. And I think that's uplifting to people because we all have those feelings and we don't want to feel uh, inadequate or, or less, less than sufficient. So to know that you can feel afraid and still get the big project done, I think that's helpful to people. How, how much do you think um, your audience is also really thinking about these, these big projects? Not necessarily climbing, but you know the big fears. And how much do you think is you know, what, what you're trying to reach to is this everyday life resilience um, in a way that you have what you just said, like I missed the bus, I missed, you know, uh, it, it's it's raining, where, where you can, of course, go back in your memory and think about worse days that, that you've had than a rainy day or, or a missed bus. How much is that part of it? It's literally, you know, these everyday moments that you try to be more resilient at versus these big, big items. Yeah, you make a very good point, which is with some big dramatic goal or big dramatic uh, incident that happens to you, it's understandable. We have to funnel all our strength and knowledge and, and emotional energy to over solving, to overcoming that. Uh, but what about the many small things, the, the, the missed bus, the overdue uh, bills, uh, the difficulties with the automobile? How, how do you get through those and not get upset? Well, I think the truth of it is we all get a little upset about those, but somehow knowing that humans can solve big things 
like earthquakes and pandemics and and stop wars and you know invent devices that can help us medically and transport those amazing things can act like inspiration to us they inspire us to deal with the smaller problems and i think we have to catch our breath and go all right if some scientist somewhere can solve the pandemic, I guess I can solve this spreadsheet problem too. I just have to dig in one more time or call somebody else in. So it's kind of like a shine, the, the big stories become shining examples to us to solve the many, many small problems that we all have to deal with in our careers and, and our day-to-day -day living. And I think they serve as good reminders to us. And that's why people look for that kind of inspiration to be inspired by the actions of others to say, wow, if they can do that, I guess I can solve this problem here. Mm. How much of your your lessons and your current, uh, you know, your, your, your state and your learnings are, is also due to the fact um, that you actually had these events that went wrong? Like uh, if, if, if you had climbed Everest without the avalanche, if, you know, the, the fall in the crevasse hadn't happened, um, you would still have a, have a lot of learnings out of out of the climbing itself. So how much would you say is really this a dramatic event which suddenly like, wakes you up? Or how much can you actually also achieve that resilience, achieve that view on life without having these um, tragedies um, um, hit to, to wake you up? Uh, yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I think if the major incident on Mount Rainier had not happened, uh, that I would not have been inspired to try and sh share that story in my book, The Ledge, because it, it almost needs, the world is so busy, there almost needs to be some kind of singular attractive point that will make you stop and listen. Uh, if you say, well, here's a person, he climbed many mountains, nothing really big happened, but he has some lessons that may not sound that attractive to people. There needs to be something dramatic about it. It's a, a tragedy happened, or it was the highest mountain or the hardest route or the first ascent. Those singular um, descriptors often attract someone and make them stop and listen. Uh, I think you're right. Probably many of the lessons I have about day-to-day -day resilience that I put into my books, The Ledge and The Next Everest, would probably still be there, but probably not attract as much uh, an initial interest. Um, there's something about those singular big incidents that catch our attention. For instance, when you listen to your local news, uh, they don't tell you about the 100,000 people that drove to work today and got there safely and nothing happened. They tell you about the car accident. And the more dramatic the car accident, that's, the, that's what makes the news. Uh, it's a sad human thing that has to be something different to really stand out to us, but it does. And so when something stands out differently, that attracts some attention and people will stop and listen. But I still think that a lot of the other lessons from um, all the other climbs uh, and, and adventures and difficulties, uh, they would still be valid. And we just need to distill them out and put them down somewhere. And that's what I try and do with the, with the writing and the speaking. Yeah, that's that, that's amazing. And and of course, the um, the training and, and the instructor side uh, or, or part that you also do where you um yeah where you take uh you've just mentioned it briefly before you um you give classes you give lessons but not only uh not only locally but you also organize some trips organize some tours um, a bit around the world um with uh with younger climbers right yes um and i do that through my local university i don't do it full time it's just part of what i do but i get a great reward from that by passing it on to the young people because i remember when i first read my first climbing books i was Uh, 13 years old in my home state of Massachusetts, reading these climbing books by these famous climbers. And they would say, well, I just come back from K2 in Pakistan, took care of some of my affairs, and then off I went to Nepal. And I'm like, hold on, stop. How, how did that happen? How, how, oh, did yeah. you, how did you fund it? Uh, and how did you make that happen? How does somebody just go to Nepal? I mean, what are the steps involved? And, you know, it's kind of hard-won knowledge 
to figure out how to get yourself trained to get the right equipment, get all this stuff to somewhere around the other side of the world, and then start moving it up a mountain so that maybe you can have a chance to summit that mountain in three weeks or in two months. Um, and so it's just, it's kind of bizarre to someone from the outside how that happens. And that's part of what I wanted to do to teach the students that there is a process to this. And it's, there's nothing magical about it. It's just a whole lot of logistics and thinking ahead and some experience uh, about trying to imagine where you're going to be and how you're going to feel a month from now on top of some 6,000-meter peak. So we try and teach them that process so that they can go on their own trips. And it's very rewarding in the years after that to hear that the students have gone off and not only gone on their own trips with their friends, but also taken the next generation of people on the trips. And that's very rewarding to see those skills passed down to the next generations. You summit a little bit every time someone of them uh, them summits. Like, yes. it, it must be very rewarding to now, um, you know, you had so much experience and you've climbed, you know, even though it is one of those big events, but you climbed the highest mountain in the world. Technically, what else is there? You know, one could argue, of course, there are many, many mountains, but you've achieved um, when it comes to these tick boxes, a, a great, great deal of things. And now you're really in that phase where you where the biggest reward is to just give back and try to multiply that 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 knowledge into into many people yes yeah, so it's very rewarding and you, and you hear about your your former teammates and students that are now off taking others out and they're doing it safely and they're going to fun places and you're right it, a, a little bit of that echoes back and you're like yes i remember when they went on their first expedition and now they're a leader and they're taking other people out it, it's very rewarding for sure and uh it's also uh It's kind of a complete circle because at some point I was an absolute newbie, a new person, and I knew nothing. And someone took the time and the patience to teach me things. So it feels like you're paying back a little bit the gifts that you were given in, in previous years. You had so many lessons and so many yeah, life lessons you, you now share. Um, and many of them, when you read about it, they sound very logical and they sound uh, you know, very coherent. Um, in theory, in practice, it's always something completely different to that, you know, not be annoyed. And how good are you uh, actually, you know, being, you know, sort of following your own ad advice in a way, like what, what, what you tell people, how, how difficult is it for you to actually follow through that, uh, that mindset? Thankful for your, for, thank you for your authoritative question there. That's a good, good, deep question. Yes, to, as, as we might say here in the States, uh, we know you, you talk your talk, but can you walk your walk? Um, yes, good question. Um, I'm human. I have my own, uh, you know, flaws and, and quirks. Uh, interesting enough, I find when I have a small situation, like I'm in line at an airport or I cannot find my phone or someone cuts me off in traffic, I get more upset about that than I do about big major crises and, and medical mishaps. I'm The bigger the incident, the calmer I can be. Uh, it's the small things that make me crazy. So, yes, I find lots of small circumstances to, to test myself to see if I'm uh, doing what I say. Um, I think that's part of what I try and do in my present in my presentations. I will show photographs of myself uh, looking very scared during the earthquake, looking very beat up after the expeditions. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not pretty. My hair is terrible. I look you can see the terror in my eyes uh, during the earthquake and afterwards. And I show those so that they know I'm not saying that I am a superhuman. I'm not Superman. Uh, they're not Superman and superwomen. We all feel those fears and uncertainties and doubts. But the point is that you can put those aside and still get the job done, still solve the problem. And I think that is probably more useful to them than if I said, oh no, I'm not afraid, I just know what to do all the time. First of all, that would be a big lie. And second of all, it's not helpful to them. They, they need to know that 
you're going to feel afraid, you're going to feel uncertainty, but you can still get through this. And I think that's a more honest and a more valuable lesson. So yeah, so in difficult circumstances, I still have my own doubts. I, I wonder if something's gonna work and I get upset and all those things, but I try and go back and say, you know what? I've been through more difficult things before. We will get through this one too. And I feel it more in a leadership situation when maybe the weather's bad and the students are scared um, and they say, oh my goodness, so, you know, this bad weather trap has got us trapped in the tent. What do we do now? And I try and be calm because I realize that I'm setting the example for them in that moment and that too they will carry on in their climbs and, and their life and pass it on to others. So you have to realize that the less experienced people are always watching you. They're watching you and I and they're watching how we respond. It's true for teachers and coaches and bosses as well. And so you can, accept, you can set the example in the moment, even if you don't know the answer. And I think that's really come out a bit over the last three years with the pandemic that none of us knew what was going to happen. None of us knew what it meant to work from home or how long the pandemic will go on, but we do have a choice in how we respond to it right here in this moment today. So by setting a good example for each other and taking turns lifting each other up, we can show others we're gonna stay calm, we're gonna figure this out, and we will get this solved eventually as humans have solved so many other things in the past. So I think it, it's, you know, the honest answer is, Yes, uh, we all feel afraid and scared and uncertain, but by setting a good example for each other and helping one another out, that's how we solve difficult problems. Do you think it's uh, especially this uncertainty people struggle with? Um, and that's maybe also a bit where my, my, my question came from, that it's just also okay to be uncertain. And even if you go out and you are a leader and you give clear commands or um, however, you, you know, however you communicate in this and make decisions in this moment, you're still uncertain. You still don't exactly know what you're doing. And do you, do you think this is just one of the skills that you have learned that it's just okay to not know fully? It's okay to be uncertain? Absolutely. And in, after the pandemic, that's one of the major points I'm making in my presentation to corporate leaders and, and government leaders is that uh, I show a video that I filmed. Uh, see, my background is I'm a geologist. So when we were trapped on Mount Everest in 2015, um, we had this massive earthquake, 7.8 magnitude. And I knew as a geologist, there would be aftershocks. So as I described in my book, The Next Everest, I, I went to our leader and said, uh, Emily, uh, I have some bad news. We're going to have huge aftershocks. And she said, how big? And I said, well, they're about 90% as big as the initial quake. So 6.5, 6.8 magnitude, which is quite large. She said, how soon? I said, well, I don't know exactly, but it'll be hours, maybe a day at the most. And so I knew we would have a big aftershock. So I kept my camera handy and I shot some video footage when we did have that quake 24.5 hours after the initial quake. And I shot a footage of Emily uh, talking to us during that aftershock and while avalanches were falling down two slopes coming down our tent wow. at 6,000 meters. And the video is only 28 seconds long, but you can see her calmness and her energy. And we listen to what she says and we watch her hand gestures. She doesn't yell at us. She talks calm. She, she is realistic, but optimistic. She says, I know it's scary, but the worst stuff fell down yesterday. So I think we're, we're okay. And she was, she was true. And so in that short video, she gave about six or seven examples of how to be a resilient leader, even when she doesn't know what to do, because Emily can't know what to do. We're in the middle of an earthquake on Mount Everest. It's never happened before. I don't know. You probably wouldn't have known. She didn't know, but look at the examples she sets. And so I tell the leaders in my presentation and I put it into the book, it's okay to be uncertain, but you still set the example on how we're going to communicate, how we're going to behave, and thus how we're going to work through this problem, even though in this moment, it seems absolutely enormous. 
and it sounds like a big part of that is 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 really also what you've touched upon before um especially during the pandemic being there for each other just understanding that you know everyone has their highs everyone has their lows right. and um like giving that support to to each other how like how important is, is that for you and your in your friends and your family circle that you just you know go on and, and show people that that you are also there for them oh absolutely as you know with friends and, and family we we inherently take turns lifting each other up you know your friend needs help moving you help them move boxes and no one actually writes that down it keeps track but six months later your vehicle breaks down on the highway and they drive out at midnight and pick you up that's that's what you do for friends and family so i think it's part of our human nature and that's why our species has evolved and there's so many of us on the planet is we we can take care of each other um, and lift each other up. Um, someone once asked the great um, uh, ethnologist, um, Margaret Mead, what was the first sign of civilization? And the person expected an answer like the first stone tools or the sign of fire. She said, I think the very first example of civilization was we found uh, an old uh, body from long ago and the person had a broken leg that had healed. And this was back like 25,000 years ago or so. And the fact that they lived long enough that they healed from a broken leg means that somebody else brought them food. Somebody else brought them water over the course of many weeks, six or eight weeks while their leg healed. Mm. And that was a mark of civilization that they were taking turns, taking care of one another and allowed someone to survive. Because in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you will not survive very long. It, it's just the way it is in nature. So the fact yeah. that humans can help each other through broken legs and everything else, uh, that's an innate trait to us. And we just have to remind ourselves of that, even on the really big things like pandemics and disasters. I think with the with the mountaineering, and that's where the majority of your experience is, is coming from, um, of course, it sounds so translatable that, of course, when you're on a mountain, you you need support. I mean, you, you're literally physically attached to one and each other to, you know, to, to support each other. Um, so, I mean, this is a very, I guess, a very figurative um, way or situation where you actually need support to to make it up there because I assume most of the times you went out you probably never went really out alone or you couldn't have done it by yourself to scale these kinds of mountains. Correct. We we sometimes in the, the media will admire someone who soloed a mountain or something like that and and mm. it seems incredible that they did that alone or without a rope. But those situations are very rare and they are very risky. Um, and they are not common at all. Um, and uh, even many times when someone says they soloed a large mountain, they may have had some help in base camp or had some help setting up the yeah. lower part of the mountain, or they were following in the tracks set uh, by others previous days who, who kicked steps into the snow and found the most efficient way to the mountain summit. Um, so they are, they are um, amazing athletic achievements, but they are infrequent and uh, they're not a very sustainable way either. People who solo a lot uh, often have bad outcomes, sadly. So it is much more common and much more efficient uh, and safe for all of us to take turns relying upon one another. And I also found it's far more fun. I, I've said to some of my partners that we've been climbing with for yeah. decades, I say, I would rather go climbing with you in the rain and not summit 
than to go with somebody who's a jerk or unfun to be with and have a good day in the sun because it's just no fun being in, in, in pretty places or under challenging circumstances with bad people. So uh, it's, it's much more <laughs> rewarding to team up with good people who are fun and are mutually supportive and you enjoy their time. Uh, you know, we could go on, on just a hike around the lake together. And if we enjoy each other's company, it'll be a great day. Um, and so that's the other thing about these big challenges. It doesn't have to be mountain climbing. It can be adventure travel or, or you know, skiing in the backcountry. Uh, if you choose good people, you're doing what you want with people that you like. It doesn't have to be Mount Everest. You can ski around the lake and have a wonderful day together and a little bit of adventure. And that's something that people can take into their own lives as, as well. You don't need to be a world-class climber. Now, now, since you teach people who probably some of them have the um, dream of becoming a world-class climber, what is one of the first advices uh, or things you tell them to do? Um, one of the most important things I teach the students is to, to never trust your life to a single piece of gear. And that's more technical situation when you're on a mountain to not have just one piece of protection attaching you and the rope to the mountain and your partner. Um, and to perhaps more broadly beyond climbing is to always be thinking several steps ahead. You know, the weather is beautiful now, but what are we going to do if it starts raining in three hours? Or an even bigger question, where are we going to be three weeks from now on this big mountain? How am I going to feel physically and emotionally? How are you going to feel physically and emotionally three weeks from now? Because a lot is going to change between now and then. And so I'm always trying to think many, many steps ahead. You can't know the future. I, don't, I do not have, as we say, a crystal ball to look into the future. But just to be contemplating that. So when the different problem arises or a new concern pops up, whether it's small like a rainstorm or big like an injury or an earthquake, uh, you have some idea of what you're going to do. So give it some thought and just kind of file that away in your back of your head. And what that does is if things go wrong or the situation changes, you've already given it some thought. So you have somewhere to go. You won't be in that frozen state we talked about earlier where suddenly you go, oh, yeah. my goodness, I never thought about this. What do I do now? Yeah. You go, well, I, I did think about the rainstorm potential or an earthquake potential. Um, so now we can start doing something about it. So I think that it reduces the chances that you will freeze up and be gripped in fear later by giving some thought to those challenging circumstances long before they happen. So not only a logistical and practical preparation, but actually also a mental preparation already before you start. Correct. Correct. And that way you won't be surprised. And so you can function under those difficult circumstances. That again makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think in, in, in theory, when you hear it uh, on, on a practical level, I can imagine super hard to try to, you know, project yourself into a avalanche on Everest, maybe that's the most extreme, but even just a snowstorm, a rainy day when you, you know, sit at home in your you know, warm, warm living room and then you try to plan out what could all go wrong. It's, uh, it sounds very difficult uh, on, the mentally, on, on a mental side to prepare yourself for, for these kinds of events. Well, it, it does take some time and energy and some people might say that's worrying too much. You know, oh, don't worry about an avalanche and what if you run out of food and, and what if the, uh, the bus doesn't come to pick you up? Don't worry about those things. And it does take some energy to, work, to think about them, but I try and analyze them and then put them aside. Saying, okay, uh, I have a, it's not a perfect plan, but I have a loose plan what we'll do if we run out of food and the bus doesn't show up. I remember where that village is or I have a regional map and we can figure out where the nearest village is and start walking towards it. So just, I, I think it builds my confidence that in whatever may happen 
that we have at least the start of a plan. And that can uh, that can calm you and calm your teammates if someone goes, oh, we're out of food and the bus didn't come. All right, let's unfold that regional map and everybody study it and figure out the easiest pathway to the nearest village. And whether we walk for two or four days, we'll, we'll get there eventually. And so it can calm not only myself, but hopefully those around me as well. So I think it's energy well spent to have that plan and then just put it aside just in case you need it. I will keep that in mind, actually, to think about, you know, what 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 could go wrong and try to put myself on that state and and not only because i've been only focusing and, and that's what i've usually been doing um a lot is focusing on the practicalities um so much on the logistics on um you know of course thinking about what could go wrong but i never thought about it in a you know how does that affect me mentally when it goes wrong but rather okay what are just you know on the practical side things i have to do so i think it's a extremely brilliant insight and uh, something I, I should definitely do way more um, to also prepare my mind for these situations. Uh, good. And I have something else along those lines, which is if you see one of your teammates is having a difficult day or maybe a longer stretch where they're not doing well on the whole trip. Um, I learned this one by volunteering on rescues. I, I was on several rescues in high mountain situations where other people that I didn't know were injured and I joined as a volunteer and you're trying to help out and uh, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot to be done and over the course of many many hours people get very tired on these rescues you expend incredible amounts of energy both mentally and physically and uh, so i eventually figured out the best thing i can ask is to go up to you if you're having a difficult day and say how can i help mm. that's it they're very simple words wow but yeah. what it is it's not judgmental i'm not saying um, you know, Torben, you look upset about what happened with your family before you left. That's my assumption. I could be very wrong about that. Maybe your stomach is upset or maybe you lost your favorite you know, book or something and you're upset. So instead of me putting my uh, perhaps wrong, wrong observations about your wrong conclusions, just ask, how can I help? And, and that is a very powerful statement. It puts the power back in your hands and it lets you know that I'm here to help you. You can say, Jim, could you go look for my book? Or maybe just, Jim, could you make me a cup of tea? Absolutely, Torben, I'll get you some tea. And so that just lifts you up a little bit and it relieves a little bit of your concern. You say, well, Jim's making my tea, I'll figure out what to do next. So I think it's a very simple statement and it's very open and it's non-judgmental. So uh, in an emergency, in a difficult time, or if your teammate's having a tough day, I think that's a good question to ask. How can I help? And even if there's nothing you can do in this very moment, I it's very reassuring to know I'm here. You know, I, I just stand by for the time being. If you need help later, let me know I'm here. Right, right. Exactly. It's reassuring. Even if nothing can be done or needs to be done, just knowing that is uplifting for your teammate. I, exactly. Jim, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, the time, the time always, always flies. It's, uh, it, it's amazing. Um, thank you so much that we, that we had that chat. I have uh, w one more question um, and um, that is, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a funny question, I would say. Uh, what, what would be the one item you, you, know, you couldn't live without, especially in adventurous situations? Is there a single piece of equipment, a single piece of item or anything that means you know, something to you that you say, okay, if I, I, I need to bring this along? Uh, yes, I carry a small black box with me, uh, about one inch by two inches. And in it, I have a few select items from all the people that have helped me and support me through the years. And in there is a pin that belonged to my climbing partner that passed away on Mount Rainier. Uh, and mm. it's an, an outward bound pin, which is a training program to teach young people uh, how to be good teammates and how to move through the world and through the wilderness. So I carry that outward bound pin that belonged to my partner, Mike. 
and I carry a small uh, religious, uh, religious medallion that my wife gave me on my my very first big climb back in uh, uh, 1983. Um, she gave it to me to keep me safe on the mountains, and I've worn that and carried that with me everywhere I go since. So I always take those with me on the big expeditions uh, as to remind me to be uh, careful and to uh, wow. um, be as strong and resilient as I can so I can get back to the people uh, who are important to me. I love that. It's it fits so well into the the narrative you're giving that uh, you didn't choose a, a practical tool, but actually you choose something that you know focuses on your mind is actually uplifting and gives you mental support, which uh, something will, yeah probably very underrated in these in these situations. Yeah, thank you for asking. That is, uh, I, I I really like that. Thank you so much, Jim. This. Uh, was absolutely amazing and i appreciate it so much that you that you took the time to yeah to to share your to share your experiences and uh, i can already tell you you have uh, you have one more one more follower it's <laughs> definitely me um i i think it was brilliant lessons and uh, and all these things as i said i'm i'm so curious about you know, going out in the world and you know also planning these expeditions and and at the same time um, you just see how much there is to learn from other people who have done that, and you will be just a fool to not uh, to not listen to them. Well, thank you. You're very kind. It was it was enjoyable for me because uh, you're a very uh, thoughtful and insightful person. So you ask good questions, uh, which which make me think and dig a little deeper. It's it's not just the common thing across the surface about you know what type of boot do I wear and things silly questions like that. Uh, it's more thoughtful human questions. I, I appreciate that very much. You you made me look inside myself. That was Jim Davidson and I found it absolutely incredible and inspiring, not only the stories of the actual events, but also his take on gratitude, his view on how to bring his experiences into everyday life and his determination and love for the mountains that always brings him back. Jim wrote two books about these events, The Ledge, about his terrifying experiences on Mount Rainier and The Next Everest about the deadly earthquake on Mount Everest. These books not only go into detail on the events, the situations that Jim and the others had to endure, but they are also an inspiring read when it comes to understanding gratitude and resilience and bringing these experiences from the mountain into everyday life. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you liked the show. And if so, please leave a review, give some stars, write some comments. We are so grateful for everything we hear. Just head to worldexplorerscollective.com. There you find email addresses and contact forms so you can reach us. And you can also read about our other initiatives like our World Explorers Grant, where we give out funding to unique expeditions and share those with you on our website. If you're an explorer, an adventurer, and you came back from an expedition or you have something unique and incredible planned, reach out to us. We would love to have you here on the podcast where you can share your details, share your story, and inspire people. 